The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from Acts 22:30 through 23:11. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priest and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you ordered me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee on trial. And when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there's no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Crystal. Uh, Good morning, everyone. My name is Lee Eric Fesco. I'm the pastor of discipleship here at Christ Pres. And I I love the book of Acts. I love all the detail that we get into it. And and what's so remarkable about it is it's not the way I would have written it. Uh, You get so many details in there that uh, validate its truth, uh, that make it uh, so special. And... uh, I want to give you a little refresher before we get into today's passage because we're right in the middle of a larger account in the book of Acts. And I want to make sure that every one of you see and understand and know the bigger picture because if you don't see the bigger picture, the smaller fragments seem chaotic. And if you see the chaos and just the chaos, you'll miss the fact that Jesus is there in the midst of us in the chaos. But before we get into that, if you don't mind, join me in prayer. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to be our guide as we go through these passages today. Our dearest Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us your word and that we can confidently know we are reading something special, that these are your words that you've preserved for our sake. Help us, we pray, by your Holy Spirit to illumine our, our hearts and minds so that we may know you better. Father, we pause right now too to pray for those in in Israel. May may the peace of Christ overwhelm hatred and terror. Protect the Christians there and those caught in the middle of the violence. Father, bring your peace into our violence. Jesus, come quickly. Make us like him. For it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. 
Many of you that uh, have known me for any amount of time or know me well know that I come from what you might consider a two-culture home. My dad was born in Homestead, Pennsylvania, and he was a second-generation citizen of this country. On my mom's side, however, my mom was born in Mexico City. She, along with her father, mother, brother, and sister, immigrated here legal, legally, she would be proud to tell you, when she was a young girl. So much of my upbringing was an interesting and sometimes challenging mix of two cultures, Mexican and American. It was a few years ago where we were celebrating my grandmother's birthday, that's my grandmother on my, my mother's side, where I decided I would get her a birthday card and my whole family would sign it, but I would write the sentiment of the card in her language, Spanish. Lyric, you know Spanish? I like to say that I'm about 70% fluent. I can make my way around a conversation in Spanish, but let me just say that sometimes the 30% that I don't know gets me in trouble. The sentiment that I wanted to write on the card, which I wrote in Spanish, I wanted it to say, Dear Grandma, we love you very much. A lot. And we give thanks for you. Love your children. Now, I want to assure you, I know how to say this in Spanish, but sometimes the grammar trips me up a little bit. For instance, if I wanted to say, I love you, I would say, te amo, which literally translates to you, I love. The you comes first, which is the reverse of what you'd say in English. So like I said, I got my grammar mixed up and I was thinking, we love you, and I was translating word for word, and instead of writing down, we love you, I wrote down in Spanish, we love ourselves. <laughs> Dear Grandma, we love ourselves. It's quite a start. I mean, I'm not done. The second thing I wanted to say in my sentiment was, we give thanks for you. I simply needed to write nos damos, which we translate to we give. Gracias, thanks, por usted. And that's the polite form of you, for you, Okay. Usted, nos damos gracias. We give thanks is what it says, unless, unless you accidentally leave off the S in nos, the word for we. If you leave off the S in nos, now it just says, no damos gracias. We don't give thanks. Some of you are very quick at picking this up. We don't give thanks for you, politely, of course. So my sentiment in total said to my dear, sweet, aging grandmother read, Dear Grandma, we love ourselves and we don't give thanks for you, politely. Love your children. And I gave that to her on her birthday. Now, the only reason I knew something was off was because when she read it, she then under her breath said to my mother in Spanish, don't say anything. <laughs> See, I understood that. When there are cultural differences as, at play, when there are linguistic differences at play, those can be barriers in communication, obviously. But the gospel, being united in Christ, allows us to overcome those barriers. We are now the culture of Christ. Both my grandmother and I, she, she passed away a couple of years ago, we have the living, active presence of the Holy Spirit, which, which overcomes those, those obstacles. We're forever united. 
This is a major theme in the New Testament, and we can't miss it. The gospel works in, around, and through those barriers. And what we've seen over the last couple of weeks in the book of Acts is Paul maneuvering around cultural and linguistic barriers. Those are the circumstances he has to work in and through. His opposition, his adversary, however, as he preaches the gospel, is a spiritual one. He has a spiritual adversary. He said it so himself in his letter to the Ephesians, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This remains our adversary too. You and I, we have an adversary, a spiritual adversary. We have a spiritual adversary who loves the chaos, but the Lord works in us and sanctifies us through the chaos. This, this is what we have to remember as we make our way through the book of Acts. Jesus is and always has been the Lord of the nations. He will not be thwarted. Now, here's what you need to know about Paul, which is very important uh, in these narratives that we've, we've gone through over the last couple of weeks, which involve both cultural and linguistic obstacles. Paul is Jewish. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. However, he's also a citizen of Rome, which was pretty unusual for a Jew back at this time. I want you to fully appreciate that for a moment because this is something I wrestled with for, for years in my early Christian life. Paul is such a prominent figure of the New Testament. Of the 27 books in the New Testament, it's believed and understood by most all Christian scholars that, that Paul wrote 13 of those 27 books. That's a substantial percentage. It's about half. And it always troubled me a little bit that of all the people the Lord could have picked to write what amounts to most of the New Testament, the Lord could have picked anybody. The Lord could have picked any, why did, he, why did he choose Paul? Why didn't he choose one of the original 12? Why didn't he choose Peter, James, or John to write most of the New Testament? Now, I can't speak to the precise reasons why, but what I can tell you is after reading and studying the book of Acts, we come to realize there wasn't a person better equipped to take the gospel to the nations than the apostle Paul, to face the cultural and linguistic barriers. Why? Because he was fully Jewish, trained by arguably the most respected rabbi of, of the time, Gamaliel. He makes this argument several times throughout the New Testament. You won't find a more Jewish Jew than Paul, yet he was also a Roman citizen. Just because you were born in a Roman territory didn't automatically make you a Roman citizen. Paul, however, was a Roman citizen by birth, we're told. He was from a city called Tarsus, which was in the Roman province of Cilicia, it's believed that his parents were of some wealth and obtained citizenship there, and by extension, Paul had citizenship too. So do you see, with his Jewish upbringing and his knowledge of Greek culture and philosophy from his time in Tarsus, Paul was the perfect apostle to take the gospel out of Jerusalem. He was uniquely equipped to take the gospel to the world. And what we read about in Acts are the details of his three missionary journeys where he did just that. But when we get to Acts chapter 20... Paul starts talking about going back to Jerusalem. We're told in Acts 20, 16, that he decided to sail past Ephesus for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem. He wanted to be there in time for, for the Passover. Now, in the same chapter, verse 22, he says, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except, uh, ex uh, expect that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. In other words, I'm going to Jerusalem despite what awaits me there. I know it's not going to be good. 
Afflictions await me, but compelled by the Spirit, I've got to go there. I've got to go. Then in the next chapter, chapter 21, Paul is warned by a prophet named Agabus. Verse 11, we're told he took Paul's belt and he bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So the prophet is telling him, Paul, when you go to Jerusalem, it's not going to be good. You're going to be delivered into the hands of the Gentiles. And despite the forewarning, Paul proceeds to Jerusalem. And from the moment he gets there, just as he expected, things go from bad to worse. He finds opposition, both Jewish and, and Roman. As soon as he gets there, James, the half-brother of Jesus and elder of the church at Jerusalem, all but says to him, hey, it's great to see you, Paul. What in the world are you doing here? All the Jews here believe you're teaching the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children and not walk according to their customs. You've got to show these people that you're not opposed to their culture. You've got to play nice, Paul. You've got to show honor and respect. And Paul says, yeah, great, I can do that, no problem. In another letter, he tells us, I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. This is how Paul spreads the gospel. He doesn't let culture become an obstacle. But almost immediately, after stepping into the temple, Paul is arrested. For what? What did he do? He was falsely accused of bringing Greeks into the temple. Nevertheless, they dragged Paul out of the temple, stirring the city up into a rage, and they wanted to kill him. They were beating him, and when Roman officials got word that there was unrest in the city, they ran down there to stop the commotion, and thankfully, they stopped beating Paul. But they still arrested him. Guilty until proven innocent. That's, that's what Paul faced. The Roman official overseeing the arrest asked the crowd what it was that Paul had done that was deserving of this. And we're told in Acts 21, 34, and they couldn't tell him exactly. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And he could not learn the facts because of the uproar. He ordered him to be brought into the barracks, imprisoned anyway. Then as he's being dragged away, he asked if he could address the crowd, and they asked him, can you speak Greek? Aren't you the Egyptian who tried to stir up a revolt? No, 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 that's not me. I'm a Jew from Tarsus. Please let me speak to the crowd for a moment. And they, they did let him speak. And when he addressed the Jewish crowd, he spoke in their own language. This is what Pastor Todd talked to you about last week. And in that language, he gave, he gave his whole testimony from beginning to end, how he persecuted Christians, but then the Lord confronted him and, and, and he was converted. And now his mission is to take the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ, the message of the followers that, once, that he once sought to kill, to take this message to the Gentiles, to the nations. And this has been God's plan all along. And that's the part they didn't want to hear. God's favor to the nations? No way. Away with him. You got to become Jewish first. Away with him. And the crowd was in an uproar once again. Cultural differences? No, these are spiritual differences. The Romans took him away, ready to beat him once again, unsure why they were going to beat him. This is how you know this is a spiritual confrontation. They're going to beat him. They don't know why. They just know that they are. They figure, we don't know what this guy has done exactly, but let's beat it out of him. And right about the time they're going to beat him, Paul tells them, excuse me, I'm a Roman citizen. You can't beat me. You, you can't do that to a Roman citizen without a trial. And they said, oh, okay, well, take him back to the Jews. This is quite the chaotic scene. All right? But have you noticed? Do you notice the similarity? Paul's sufferings were strikingly similar 
to someone else we know. I've got to go to Jerusalem. Don't do that. They'll kill you. That's what they told Jesus. Arrest this man, even without cause. That's what they wanted of Jesus too. Back and forth between the Romans and the Jews and the Jews back to the Romans and then back to the Jews again. That's what they did to Jesus too. You want to kill this man? I find no fault in him. That's what they said to Jesus too. All that happened before this. When the, when the Romans sent him back before the Jews because they didn't know what to do with him and it's not one minute of standing in front of the Jews where Paul tries to make his defense and says, listen, you guys, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this point and with that, the high priest had him struck in the mouth. He told the truth and they struck him. That's what they did to Jesus too. You see, it seems as though Paul is walking in the footsteps of Jesus, who himself faced a spiritual foe. They hit Paul in the mouth, and with that, you might say that Paul reached his boiling point. For the first time throughout this whole ordeal, Paul, you might say, loses his cool. He says, what's the matter with you? God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Similar language to what Jesus used when addressing the Pharisees and religious uh, leaders of the day. Those who look good on the outside but we're dead on the inside. You're going to strike me? How does that square with the law you say you follow? Frankly, I, I can't say I blame him. I'm not, sure, I'm not sure I would have kept my composure this long. Frankly, I understand why he'd lose it. I think if we're being honest, every follower of Christ reaches this point at some point. Have you ever reached a point where you ask God, hello? Are you there? Are you even there? Do you hear me? You ask this because all around you, it seems like you don't see God. You can't see how he's working in a situation like this. And you have to ask, hello, are you there? I, I don't see God here. I just got struck in the mouth. God, are you going to help? Or are you just going to leave me here? Our enemy loves chaos. But what our enemy fails to realize is that our God works through the chaos. But of course, Paul lost his cool. We, we do too, because sometimes it's difficult to see the Lord at work. When one of my boys was, was much younger, uh, we told them we wanted to sign up for a team sport of some kind, any kind. We wanted him to, to have the experience of working with others to achieve a common goal. So we told him, I don't care what it is, if it's the swim team, soccer team, you've got to at least try something along those lines. And after a lot of discussion and a lot of bargaining, he chose to sign up to play baseball. He wasn't thrilled about it. But he did it. First of all, the other kids that signed up had already been playing baseball for two to three years. So he felt a little bit behind the others. But, but he and I, we played in the backyard. I knew he could hit the ball. I knew he could throw the ball. But generally speaking, he was a shy kid and he wasn't fond of the spotlight. And let me tell you, there's not a brighter spotlight than being up to bat at a, on a baseball diamond. The focus is on you. There's no hiding from the fact that the team is counting on you. It's a lot of pressure. We were several games into the season, and one of the conditions of him playing baseball was that I would also sign up to be one of the coaches. I wasn't the manager of the team, but I was one of the coaches, one of the helpers, and one of the roles I often got to play was first base coach. So every time my son got up to bat, I had a really good view of the action. I could see his face as he faced the pitcher. Now, it's fair to say up to this point, he was surviving this experience of baseball. Hitting the ball came fairly easy to him when I was pitching to him in practice, but when the other kids were pitching, 
different story. I promise you there were some 12-year-olds on the opposing team that had full beards <laughs> and had driver's licenses. And on this one instance in particular, it was a, a high-pressure situation. Two outs, guys in scoring position were behind, so we really needed a, a hit right now. We, we really needed him to come through and get a run or two and extend the inning a little longer, and my son comes up to bat. And again, to this point, he hasn't had a lot of personal victories at the plate. So what did I do? I prayed. I prayed hard. Again, I'm coaching first base, but I had the thought of dropping to my knees right there along the first baseline and begging the Lord for mercy. Please, Lord, let him get a hit here. Lord, let him, let him, let him just have this one. Please, I'm begging you, just let him have this one victory. Don't, don't let him let the team down. Please don't let him be defeated in this moment. I'm not even asking for a home run here, just a base hit. That's all I want. Just get on base. Just let him have this one, just this one, Lord. Please, please. He steps up to the plate. The pitcher gets in his stance. He winds up. The pitch. Guess what happens next? He got hit by the pitch. You might say I lost my cool. Not, not at the pitcher, not at my son, not even at the game of baseball. I lost my cool with the Lord. Really, I did. Immediately I said to the Lord, if you can imagine this, really, Lord, that's how you're going to answer my prayer? You're going to answer my prayer that way? I asked for one lousy base hit and my son gets plunked in the shoulder. I'm not proud of my response. But you have to realize this. If we're unhappy with our circumstances, we have to remember it's the Lord who puts us there. The Lord ordains whatsoever comes to pass. I couldn't be upset with anyone other than God. But remember, God works through the chaos. I don't know why exactly the Lord allowed that to be the result of, of, of this at bat, but in all, in all his wisdom, that's what happened. Sometimes we get hit. Sometimes it's in the shoulder, sometimes it's in the mouth. And I think our first impulse is to say, God, why did you allow that? What, what are you doing here? We lose our cool. Paul gets hit in the face, just like Jesus. You might say he's walking in the footsteps of Jesus, the very footsteps, step for step, just like Jesus. And you know what? It's not just Paul walking in the footsteps of Jesus. This is the pattern of every disciple of Christ. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus, this is what you can expect too. Paul went to Jerusalem because he knew he had to go there. He knew what he would face. He knew he would be opposed. In Acts 20, 24, in reference to going to Jerusalem, Paul said, but I do not count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of grace, the gospel, uh, to the gospel of the grace of God. He's saying, it's not about me. This is not about me. This is about God. This is about the gospel. And you know what? We follow in these footsteps too. Sometimes the Lord asks us to go into situations where we know we'll be opposed. And for the Lord's sake, we go. We go for the sake of the gospel, not to advance our own causes, but for the sake of the gospel. We stand up for the cause of Christ, knowing we'll be opposed. We're following in the footsteps of Christ. We'll be persecuted. We'll be treated unfairly because of the gospel for which we stand. But we're following in the footsteps of Christ. 
Friends, I hope it never comes to this. But one day there could come a time when, when you're arrested for, for proclaiming the gospel. And if that day comes, which is already happening in some parts of the world, know you're following in the footsteps of Christ. You're being made to be like Jesus. You're a follower of Christ. Why does the Lord allow us, most often it seems, to be hit instead of looking back at victory after victory? Because he knows how we are. He knows we tend to respond to victory in this way. We have an awful tendency to taste victory and then pat ourselves on the back. But when we're struck, what, what pride can we take in that? We have no other course of action other than to say, okay, Lord, I don't know what you're doing here, but I know you're good. I trust in your promises. I trust in your word. Your word tells me, Romans 6, 5, for if we have been unified with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. I'm walking in the footsteps of my Savior. I'm being made to be like him. I'm being patterned after Jesus Christ. After they struck Paul in the mouth, Paul struck back with words. And they who held him there said, what's the matter with you? Don't, don't you know who you're talking to? This is, you're talking to the high priest. And Paul says, oh, I didn't, I didn't realize it was the high priest. You, you shouldn't do that. As it's written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. And now if we're being honest here, again, not the way I would write it. Thank God it's not me writing it. We wish we could say to Paul, no, don't, don't back down there. They are a bunch of whitewashed walls. But Paul recognizes the message of the gospel is of greater priority here. He came to preach the gospel. He came, as we'll see in the weeks ahead, to have an audience before the most powerful person in the world, before Caesar. So yes, he could get into a shouting match with a high priest, or he could do what he came to do. We might ask ourselves the same thing. Whatever and whenever we're in a confrontation of any kind, we might ask ourselves, is it important that I win this argument? Does winning this argument advance the cause of Christ? Does coming out on top of this confrontation make people see Jesus more clearly? If the answer is no, then what am I really fighting for? Who am I fighting for? Is it worth fighting for at all? Paul says, no, I'm not here to get to a shouting match with the high priest. I'm here for a higher purpose. I'm here for the gospel. So at this point, when Paul realized who he's talking to, and his audience, as many scholars believe, um, he really didn't know who he was in front of because he had poor eyesight, as he alludes to in, in the letter to the Galatians. But once, once he does realize who he's in front of, what does Paul do next? This is really kind of humorous, what he does. Paul realizes he's talking to the, the, the ruling class of Jews, which in Israel were composed of the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, both religious sects within Judaism, both groups honored the law of Moses and both had a measure of political power. Both Pharisees and Sadducees sat on the Sanhedrin, which was a 70-member Supreme Court of ancient Israel. So imagine, if you can, what it would be like to have a ruling body composed of two parties that often opposed one another. What's that like? One of the primary differences between the Pharisees and the Sadducees was a theological one. The Pharisees believed that one day there would be a resurrection of the dead, and the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They, they entirely denied the idea of an afterlife altogether. So Paul recognizes that he's before the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he basically says, my bad on not realizing this was the high priest, 
But by the way, it just so happens that I'm a Pharisee. Remember, he's a Hebrew of Hebrews, trained under Gamaliel, a Pharisee. So he's invoking his Pharisee card here. And he hasn't done that for quite some time, but this seems like as good of an opportunity as an ever. I'm a Pharisee, by the way. He says, I'm a Pharisee, and you know, I'm just saying the things that I'm saying because of my hope in the resurrection. Let, let me tell you what this would be like. This would be like being on trial in the Senate for something completely unrelated to immigration and then suddenly making a remark about immigration. Hey, don't you guys have some kind of feud about immigration? Maybe you should discuss that. Boom. The place erupts. The Pharisees suddenly say, you know what? We see nothing wrong with this guy. We kind of like him. Let him go. The argument got so heated that it became violent, so violent the tribune decided to remove Paul from the area and take him back down to the barracks. Now, again, if we're being honest here, this is not the ending we were expecting. It, it almost seems like Paul is being a little underhanded here. He even contributes to the chaos. If I were writing this story, again, this is not how I would make this go. We like to write about heroes, but, but this is what I love about the Bible. It's so human in that regard. The Bible isn't a collection of stories about heroes. It's a collection of narratives about flawed people who need Jesus. It's about a savior who tells these flawed people, trust me. But this is not the ending I'd expect. Much like my son getting hit by a pitch. If I were God, that's not the ending that I would have picked for my son. It was so anticlimactic. But at least he got on base, right? But that doesn't make a good storyline. That's not what movies are made of. That's not what television shows are made of. Welcome to the life of a Christian. It's not always glamorously victorious. In fact, it's seldom ever glamorously victorious. It's often marked by suffering, but not defeat. Survival, yet hope for tomorrow. That's a great sales pitch, isn't it, for anyone who's exploring Christianity? Doesn't that sound appealing? You're mostly going to lose. But it's the truth, though. The Christian life isn't marked by victory after victory. It's a life where you take a lot of hits. Sometimes you get hit. Often you get hit. But it's not the end. My son took his base and started jogging down the first baseline. And who was waiting for him at first base? It was me, the first base coach, his father. And I asked him, are you okay? I know that hurt, but hang in there. You might have to run to second base in a second. And I love you. Truth be told, I don't remember if I said I love you, but I really wish that I did. I probably said something like, all right, you're gonna have to gear up here. Come on, shake it off. I probably said something dumb like that, right? But I told him, be ready because I do love him and I'm his dad, and I know this isn't the last time he's going to be knocked down. Paul sat at the barracks. He sat in the barracks, and we read in verse 11, the first person to greet him was the Lord. And the text tells us the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. In other words, the Lord told Paul, hang in there, you're going to have to run to second base in a bit. There's still more to do. Did Jesus tell Paul, and also I love you? Not in those exact words, but the text tells us that the sovereign of the universe, 
the one who the author of Hebrews tells us after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The sovereign Lord of the earth, the one who is seated at the right hand of God, took a stand next to Paul. In John 12, 26, Jesus tells us, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. The Father loves Paul. And the Father loves you. And the Lord stands by your side. And you may feel defeated today, but he picks us up and he carries us through. My, uh, my family and I just returned from, from Disney World on Friday. We spent all week there. They say it's the happiest place on earth and it is if you love standing in line. There's a popular comedian who once said, if you want to know what it's like to go to Disney, just imagine you're standing in line at the Department of Motor Vehicles, and that's it. <laughs> For all the tricks they help you with, you know, in, in mitigating the time you, you stand in line, there's no avoiding it. A significant portion of your time will be spent standing in line, standing in line to get in the park, standing in line to get on a ride, standing in line to, to get into another attraction. There was one occasion where we came upon a ride that we all wanted to get on and we saw the standby time was, was 60 minutes. And my son said, oh, no way, forget it. And when he said that, I would ask him, what else are you going to do? If you want to wait until later on in the day, it'll probably be even longer than 60 minutes. And after all, it probably won't even actually be 60 minutes. It was almost 60 minutes to the second. They have that figured out there, let me tell you. They're really good at estimating those times. But it was a couple of days later, later when unsolicited, my son told me, when you look back, you don't remember all the waiting. You just remember how fun the ride was. And I said, you're exactly right. That's exactly true. And it's so profound what you're saying. We will wait for the Lord. Patience is a requirement of the Christian life. There's no other alternative. You will wait on the Lord. He never seems to answer our prayers as fast as we'd like. But we learn along the way that it is though we suffer in the moment, though we suffer in the moment, though it seems like chaos abounds, when we take a step back and see the bigger picture, we see a picture of redemption, where all the moments of suffering along the way are redeemed and we get to experience ultimate redemption too. We've been united with him in a death like his, and we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That's a promise. That's what awaits you. And when you step back and see the bigger picture, yes, there's defeat along the way. Yes, there's chaos along the way, but there's a promise at the end of it that you will be redeemed. You will be made whole. He will finish the work that he began in you. That's a promise. Will you pray with me? Father, we, we so often get discouraged in the day to day. We, we get discouraged in the moment and, and we forget to consider who we are in Christ We've been united with him and we're following in his footsteps. And one day, one day, you'll finish this work. You'll finish the work that you began in us and we'll be raised in Christ. Give us strength for each moment and help us to cling to the promised hope we have in Christ. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, come quickly. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.